0: I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about
1: all the opinions, whether AMK is here to stay, and we interview new D.C. Circuit Judge Greg Katzis.
0: On Thursday and Friday of this week, the court released a number of decisions. There are now 10 cases remaining, including the travel ban, ban, Janice, Nifla, and that eagerly anticipated water dispute between Florida and Georgia. I know Tiffany's excited about that one. Yeah,
1: and I'm going to the court on, on Monday to hear them uh, release the opinions. So I'm the court will,
0: will release those opinions next week. And... Every opinion day, I, I spend the last thirty minutes before the opinions come out, like many Scotus watchers, on Scotus blog, their live blog. Same. And the other day, somebody suggested a hashtag, which I think we need to make. We need to make this happen. It needs to become a thing. Hashtag awaiting Amy for Amy Howe, who we had on the podcast not that long ago. She's with Scotus blog. And we need to make that a thing. Uh, waiting for Lyle used to trend on on decision days back when he was their their head reporter. And I think awaiting Amy is the new thing. So listeners, everybody like start it. tweeting hashtag awaiting Amy. Mm-hmm. So anyway, let's dig into the decisions from this week. First up is Carpenter versus United States. This is a case that was argued at the end of November. And so now we know why it took so long. There were four dissenting opinions All that had different theories for why the majority was so, so wrong. (laughs) So Chief Justice uh, John Roberts wrote the majority in a 5-4 decision joined by Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, with the court holding that the government conducts a search for the purposes of the Fourth Amendment when it accesses historical cell phone location records from a wireless provider. So by way of background, the FBI obtained... Uh, robbery suspects' cell phone records after getting a court order under the Stored Communications Act. And all this required was a a showing of reasonable grounds that the records it sought were relevant and material to an ongoing investigation. This is a lower standard than probable cause, which is required for a warrant. As a result, the government got data showing uh, that the suspect, Timothy Carpenter, uh, showing his nearly 13,000 location points over 127 days. And the government was able to use these to tie him to six robberies. So at the trial, the district court denied Carpenter's motion to suppress the data and the Sixth Circuit affirmed holding that Carpenter lacked a reasonable expectation of privacy in that information because he voluntarily shared it with his cell phone provider. The Supreme Court disagreed and reversed the Sixth Circuit finding that first off, it pointed out that the Fourth Amendment protects both privacy interests and certain expectations, property interests, I'm sorry, and certain expectations of privacy under Katz versus United States, which was a 1967 case. So here, Carpenter's Fourth Amendment claim lies at the intersection of two lines of cases, Chief Justice Roberts wrote. The first is the third-party doctrine, which says that a person loses his expectation of privacy in information that he voluntarily shares with a third party. And and the second line is a holding that a person maintains an, an, a reasonable expectation of privacy in the totality of his movements. That came from United States versus Jones, a 2012 case dealing with GPS tracking of of criminal suspects. So the court declined to extend the third party doctrine to cover cell site records, pointing out uh, that the the previous cases dealt with more than simply the act of sharing information with a third party. The majority explained that allowing government to access cell cell site records contravenes the expectation of privacy in that data, which provides, quote, an all-encompassing... encompassing record of the holder's whereabouts. The court stressed that its ruling is narrow and will not affect conventional surveillance techniques and tools or the government's ability to obtain a search warrant supported by probable cause, but the Stored Communications Act court order provision is no longer an option. The dissenters saw this differently, to put it mildly. Uh, Justice Kennedy, joined by Thomas and Alito, wrote a dissent highlighting the fact that That the majority puts, quote, needed reasonable, accepted, lawful, and congressionally authorized criminal investigations at serious risk. He would have resolved the issue on property rights grounds, and he said that the government did not search anything Carpenter owned or controlled, and that should resolve the case. Justice Alito also was concerned about Congress. In his dissent, which Justice Thomas joined, he said that Congress is better suited to address rapidly changing technology and invalidating this provision of the Stored Communications Act will dissuade Congress from further legislation uh, to protect privacy. Now, Justices Thomas and Gorsuch also wrote solo dissents that nobody else uh, joined. Thomas wrote that the court has no authority to unilaterally alter the Fourth Amendment and that it really needs to reconsider the cat's test, uh, the expectation of privacy test from 1967. Gorsuch also on these lines said that, you know, Katz is a ruling that goes against the text and original understanding of the Fourth Amendment. Justice Alito, not surprisingly, did not join either of those dissents uh, because he, he's written approvingly of the CATS test, the expectation of privacy test. Uh, going back to the GPS tracker case from 2012, he would have resolved that case uh, on privacy grounds instead of Scalia's property rights approach. So we'll see if the impact on criminal investigations uh, that the dissenters predict uh, comes, you know, comes from, uh, from this ruling. Next up is Lucia versus SEC.
1: And this is a long-awaited decisions by the admin uh, law nerds on, <laughs> on Twitter. But this opinion was written by Justice Kagan, joined by Roberts, Kennedy, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch. And the court held that the Securities and Exchange Commission's administrative law judges, or ALJs, are officers of the United States for purposes of Article 2 of the Constitution and not mere employees or lesser functionaries in the federal workplace. The court relied on a 1991 decision, Freitag versus Commissioner, in which the court decided that special trial judges of the U.S. tax court, which they called near-carbon copies of the SEC's ALJs, are officers of the United States. So accordingly, ALJs must be appointed by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate or by the SEC itself and not by subordinate SEC officials. And so the ALJ who resolved Lucia's case was not properly appointed And so the court said that he deserves a new hearing before a different ALJ. Justice Thomas concurred, joined by Gorsuch, writing that rather than rely exclusively on Freitag, Thomas would have relied on the original public meaning of the term officers of the United States, which he said leads to the same result. And he cited several times Jen Mascott's Stanford Law Review article who are officers of the United States, and we interviewed Jen about that article earlier this year. Justice Breyer concurred in the judgment In part and dissented in part. He agreed with the majority that Lucia's ALJ was improperly appointed, but he would have relied on the Administrative Procedure Act rather than Article II for that result. He also concluded that the ALJ in this case could rehear the matter once he was properly appointed to that position. And uh, Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor joined that latter aspect of Breyer's opinion. And Justice Sotomayor. joined by Ginsburg, also wrote a dissent contending that only someone with the ability to make final binding decisions on behalf of the U.S. is an officer. And SEC ALJs don't have that authority because they only offer the SEC advisory recommendations that the SEC must then affirm or reject. Um, I've read a little bit of of commentary um, about this and people are talking about how there's not uh, a lot of narrowing language in the opinion so we'll see
0: we'll see how broad this is in practice yeah and I think it's somewhat surprising that Kagan ended up writing the opinion and that it may be pretty broad because at the oral argument she seemed very skeptical of the the challengers in their position here so that's a another lesson that you you can't always tell how people are going to vote based on the questions they ask at oral argument so next up is South Dakota versus Wayfair. In a 5-4 decision by Justice Kennedy, the court held that its physical presence rule, which prevents states from requiring out-of-state retailers to collect and remit sales taxes, is quote "unsound and incorrect." So by way of background, South Dakota passed a law challenging the physical presence rule and the law would require retailers that make more than $100,000 in sales or more than 200 transactions in a year to collect and remit sales taxes regardless of whether they have a physical presence such as employees or a storefront in that state. Wayfair and other retailers, online retailers that lacked a presence in South Dakota challenged the law in state court and the state courts ended up ruling for the retailers so now the U.S. Supreme Court reversed, writing that the physical presence rule imposes the sort of arbitrary, formalistic distinction that the court's modern Commerce Clause precedents disavow. The, the court noted that the Commerce Clause was designed to prevent states from engaging in economic discrimination, but that does not relieve those engaged in interstate commerce from their just share of state tax burden. It concluded that the Internet's prevalence and power have changed the dynamics of the national economy. There were a couple of concurrences, but I just want to highlight Justice Thomas's because his concurrence basically just expressed regret that he did not vote to overrule the physical presence rule uh, when the court heard such such a case in 1992. So I guess better late than never for Justice Thomas and the chief justice dissented joined by Sotomayor and Kagan. And he they wrote uh, he wrote that e-commerce has grown into a significant and vibrant part of our national economy against the backdrop of established rules. And that Congress, not the court, is the appropriate branch of government to address potential changes to such a critical segment of the economy. So we'll see now if Congress takes up the mantle and, and codifies the, the previous physical presence rule or comes up with something else or does nothing. <laughs>
1: um, next we have, I, I always, I don't never know how to say this case. Pereira Pereira? 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 versus Sessions. So this opinion um, was written by Justice Sotomayor, joined by all of the justices except Alito. And the court held that a punitive notice to appear sent to an alien by the Department of Homeland Security that doesn't designate the specific time and place for a removal hearing is not a notice to appear under the illegal immigration reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996 that would trigger the stop time rule. So the court wrote that requiring the government to furnish time and place information in a notice to appear is entirely consistent with Congress's stated objective of presenting, uh, preventing non-citizens from exploiting administrative delays to accumulate lengthier periods of continuous presence. But because the statute was unambiguous, Chevron analysis was not triggered. Justice Kennedy wrote, a concurrence, which um, has a lot of people talking about, you know, on Twitter in the legal sphere. Um, and he said that he was concerned with the way Chevron has come to be understood and applied and that the reflexive deference exhibited in some cases is troubling. And he cited dissents that the chief, Thomas, and Gorsuch had all written um, about this same thing. And Kennedy wrote that the proper rules for interpreting statutes and determining agency jurisdiction and substantive agency powers should accord with the constitutional separation of powers, principles, and the function and province of the judiciary. Now, uh, some people think that this means Kennedy is here to stay since he's picked up a new um, Chevron mantle, but (laughs) we'll we'll have to see. I don't know if I buy that.
0: Yeah, you know, I've seen some people saying on Twitter, you know, why, why would he flag this as an issue that he's interested in when... It's something that has been brewing for a while. Why would he bring it up now if he's about to retire? Uh, but why does Kennedy do anything? That, that's true. Does. We don't understand yeah. the mind of, of Justice Kennedy. But whatever he's thinking, whatever he's going to do, I'm glad that he's joined the crowd of Chevron uh, skeptics. Indeed. So the court also issued opinions in a few other cases. Uh, we won't get into the details, but one of them has to do with whether the Supreme Court has jurisdiction to review the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, which it held that it does. But at the, the oral argument, Justice Kennedy asked one of the lawyers if uh, Marbury versus Madison was, was correctly decided, <laughs> which was uh, kind of a humorous moment. But anyway, we recently spoke with the D.C. Circuit's newest addition, Judge Greg Katzis. Greg Katzis is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Judge Katzis. Thank you. So before joining the bench, you argued 75
1: appeals, including 13 before the court on which you now sit. What's it like being on the other side of the bench?
2: In in many ways, it's like being an appellate practitioner, Um I, I review briefs. I participate in arguments. I, I write up decisions. Um, it's the same kind of rigorous analy- analytical thinking and debating and deciding.
1: So you also argued three cases in the Supreme Court. Which was the most memorable?
2: I'd have to say Obamacare. Uh, <laughs> no, no surprise there. Uh, this was the 2012 constitutional challenge to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, There were six hours of oral argument over the course of three days. We had four different argued issues and I argued the question whether Obama, the challenge to Obamacare uh, was a tax for statutory purposes. I won that issue, but unfortunately, so the court said it was not a tax under the statute. That was my issue. Unfortunately, they went on to say it it was a tax uh, under the Constitution and upheld it on that basis.
0: And you were on a team with Paul Clement and right. Mike Carvin—quite a quite right. a dream, dream team, team at the Supreme yeah. Court. <laughs> sure was. Uh, did you have any pre-argument
1: traditions like eating salmon or? Listening to a particular pump-up song, like John Elwood, I think he was pump-up songs. Right? Yeah, <laughs> uh,
2: nothing, nothing quite that dramatic. I had a standard um, ritualistic way of preparing for cases, but in, in terms of the immediate run-up, I would say the only uh, the only common feature was not sleeping uh, the <laughs> night before.
0: Do you sleep better before oral arguments now that you're uh, on I the do. other side? I do. Yeah. <laughs> So before becoming a judge, most recently you served as Deputy White House Counsel. What were the highlights of your experience there? We hear it's a busy place.
2: Uh, it is. It, it was extremely um, demanding, high stress, high pressure, particularly the first few months, 15-hour days. Multiple matters uh, coming at us very quickly, very little time to evaluate very hard issues that we had to give advice on immediately. Um, I'd say the most rewarding thing and one of the most important things we did was the uh, recommendations on judicial nominations. Um, Obviously, Justice Gorsuch, uh, Mm -hmm. but we worked on many Court of Appeals nominations that I'm very proud of, um, Allison Ide, uh, Joan Larson, Steve Beebis, um, Amy Barrett, Kevin Newsom, on, on and on down the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are really terrific candidates, and I'm just grateful to have been able to help them a little bit along the way.
1: What, and what was it like working with Don McGahn? We're, we're Don groupies
2: over here. <laughs> he he is one of the real unsung heroes of the administration and, and in American political life today. Um, it, uh, White House counsel is one of the hardest jobs in Washington. It, um, if you do it well, uh, nobody knows. It's it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a behind the scenes job, right? Yeah. You only get publicity when things are not going well. Um, He has all the skills. He has the legal skills. He has the political skills. Um, He knows the people close to the president. He's the complete package. Um, And he's done an amazing job under some pretty challenging circumstances.
1: Um, Changing gears a little bit, in 2013, the Chief Justice appointed you to serve on the advisory committee on appellate rules where you served until last year. So what does this committee do?
2: Uh, It's a group that recommends um, amendments to the federal rules of appellate procedure, uh, up the chain ultimately to the Supreme Court. Typically, the work of that body is extremely boring. Uh, We did things (laughs) like uh, recommend changes to what's called the prisoner mailbox filing rule, which is how prisoners get to file appeals. Um, we did have one extremely controversial issue when I served on the committee, which was uh, reducing the length of briefs. And we managed to get the entire appellate bar up in arms when we <laughs> cut, cut the word <laughs> limits back a little bit.
0: It's funny. So you clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas. Right shortly after he joined the bench, both on the D.C. Circuit and the Supreme Court. And we've spoken with a number of other former Thomas clerks, and we've heard about how he knows everybody at the court from the, the janitors on up, and he's a man who loves to crack jokes. So tell us a little bit about working with him and, and some of your memories.
2: Uh, both those things are true. Um, my, my most striking memory uh, being with him when he joined the Supreme Court was— how easily he settled in and how um, principled and tough and courageous he was even at the outset of his tenure. Um, He joined the court at age 43. Uh, He came aboard in the middle of a year. We we started two weeks before the November sitting, after the October sitting, so he didn't have the luxury of a summer to settle (laughs) in. Um, obviously he was coming off a very ugly confirmation process, uh, but he hit the ground running and even, uh, even in the very first setting, he just called everything as he saw them. He wasn't afraid to dissent when he thought, um, that's where the law should lead. Uh, and he hit the ground running and did an amazing job, uh, from that very first sitting.
0: And you've stayed pretty close with him over the years. I know you uh, you moderated a conversation with him uh, in Washington last year. Uh, I, I forget what what organization it was. Um,
2: maybe but. maybe Heritage or, or Federalist <laughs> Society. Pretty good bet.
0: Yeah, but it seems like he has an incredible community of clerks. His his clerks family, as as people call it.
2: The, his clerk family is much more close knit and cohesive than that of any other judge or justice that I know of, um, it, that is largely due to his commitment to all of his law clerks. He views that as a, not just a one year one-off relationship between Mm -hmm. a, a master and an apprentice. He views this as a, a lifelong relationship and one of mentoring, um, it's also largely due to the efforts of Mrs. Thomas, who is just tireless in uh, collecting all the information and doing the emails about what everyone is doing and keeping everyone together and setting up the, the retreats and the reunions and um, the lunches and uh, everything like that that we do.
0: So it sounds like Mrs. Thomas has a newsletter for the clerks. She does. I'd love to get my hands on one of those. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's funny. Uh, so you replaced Janice Rogers Brown right. on the D.C. Circuit, and I think it'd be an understatement to say she left big shoes to fill. Was it intimidating being her successor? Uh,
2: it was a little bit intimidating, so I, I never argued before Judge Brown, um, but I... Uh, I'll tell you, when When I was a law clerk, there were 12 active members of the D.C. Circuit, and six of them are still on the court hearing cases. And many of them, practic- I mean, virtually all of them were legal giants. And the thought of uh, becoming, at least nominally, the equal of someone like a a Larry Silberman or a Ray Randolph, um, that, um, was a little bit daunting.
0: So tell us a little bit more about the transition from being in private practice and a government attorney to now becoming a judge.
2: So I, I would say the, I would say private practice for me as an appellate, a practicing appellate lawyer was somewhat similar to being a judge. Um, handling appeals, uh, on a hands-on active basis. Um, as a relatively senior partner at Jones Day, I had a fair amount of control over my day-to-day schedule. Um, I had lawyers supporting me functioning the way my law clerks now do. I had some control over time. I could often get home to see my kids, um, white house Counsel's office was completely different. Uh, that was <laughs> yeah, constant, that. constant chaos, certainly yeah. no time to write up anything, um, akin to either a brief or an opinion. Um, we were constantly on other people's schedule. So we would have to not just work really long hours, but be on campus from early in the morning to late at night. And, um, uh, that's a tough job if you have two young kids, as I do.
1: Well, we have one final question for you. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about?
2: Uh, so I'll, like, I'll exclude the obvious recent ones like Scalia and Thomas. Um, so going back away ways, I, I would say uh, William Howard Taft, have to be high on my list he was Chief Justice of the United States uh, he was president of the United States he was on the Sixth Circuit by his early 30s he was Solicitor General of the United States he just had an amazing life and
1: Secretary and, of War
2: um, amazing life and career and wrote some extremely important opinions Myers versus United States of landmark opinion on executive power.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, that would be a great conversation. And I'd love to pick his brain about, you know, his thoughts on the uh, building, the Supreme Court building. Right, right. um, Anyway, that that would be great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, criminal clerks edition, and I'm going to try to stump Tiffany. What does that even mean? You'll see in the course of the questions, but it has nothing, it has no ties To the opinions from this week or to our interview with Judge Katzis, it was just I was chatting with the interns and this came up uh, and and (laughs) one of them did some research. And you know what? I think you'll enjoy the questions. You'll learn something if you don't know the answers. Sounds good. Okay, first question. Which former Supreme Court law clerk was accused of being a Soviet spy and convicted of perjury? While he maintained his innocence, it would later come out in the 90s from decrypted Soviet archives that he was indeed a spy for the Soviet oh, Union. That really happened? Yeah. I have no idea. It's Alger Hiss or Alger Hiss? Alger. Yeah. Alger Hiss. He, he was a Supreme Court clerk? He was. I did not know that. He clerked for Oliver Wendell Holmes, and oh. yeah, and he was a spy. <laughs> Next question Are you ready? Yeah. What former Supreme Court law clerk was convicted of voter fraud in 1948? <laughs> 1948. Is this a famous person? Uh,
1: is it a random person that I wouldn't even be able to guess? Through?
0: I'm not sure. I mean, it's in the Heritage Foundation's voter fraud index, which you can check out on our website. I think it's heritage.org backslash voter fraud or something like that. We'll tweet it from the SCOTUS 101 account. I
1: have no idea. You
0: want to take a stab at who he who clerked for? And then I'll tell you who it is? In
1: the 40s? No. Okay. I don't know.
0: It's Edward Pritchard Jr., who was a law clerk to Justice Felix Frankfurter. He was considered part of FDR's Brain Trust, and in 1948, he stuffed 254 fraudulent (laughs) ballots into boxes at 11 precincts in Bourbon County, Kentucky, my home state. (laughs) Wait, so this
1: was—was this before he clerked at the Supreme Court or after? No,
0: this was after. So he was convicted of the crime and spent five months in a federal penitentiary in Ashland, Kentucky— before being pardoned by President Harry Truman. Oh, interesting. So voter fraud, it's a real thing. Third question. Now, this isn't a Supreme Court clerk, but it's, it's still a criminal clerk's question. Okay. What former Nebraska bank robber would go on to write two successful petitions for cert to the U.S. Supreme Court while in prison and clerk for just, uh, for Judge Janice Rogers-Brown on the D.C. Circuit. Oh,
1: I do know this one. Sean Hopwood.
0: That is correct. And what does he do today?
1: Yeah, he's a law professor. He's Yorkshire. a criminal law professor. Yeah.
0: yeah. And I think he runs one of their appellate clinics. Yeah. Maybe we should have him on the podcast at some point. Yeah, we should. Okay, fourth and final question. This one isn't about a clerk, but it's it's still good. Okay. Which Supreme Court justice killed a man in a duel in 1798?
1: Oh, dang it. I know this one. Um,
0: what is his name? Peter Daniel. Well, that is a Supreme Court justice who killed someone in a duel, <laughs> but it was 10 years later. So we, we talked about this, and I think our very first episode of the podcast, we included the, the trivia about uh, Peter Vivian Daniel a Supreme Court justice who killed a businessman in a duel in Maryland in in 1808. But there's another Supreme Court justice (laughs) who killed someone in a duel. Really? Henry Brockholst Livingston, who he was apparently he insulted some man, an angry federalist who punched him in the (laughs) nose and then Livingston challenged him to a duel. Uh, And it was at the same the same location in New Jersey where Aaron Burr shot Alexander Hamilton and Livingston shot this man. I don't know his name, but he shot him and he killed him. Wow. So that's two Supreme Court justices who were stone cold <laughs> killers. Good old days. <laughs> well, I want to thank our intern Scott, uh, Scott French for finding these gems because uh, he provided all of the, the research for, for our Supreme Trivia this week. Uh, so the court is going to release more opinions on Monday and later in the week. So stay tuned for episodes next week. And thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. And you can email us at
1: SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101. Executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersat. For more information, visit heritage.org.